I'm in uh, Matthew chapter 10 today. Matthew chapter 10, the first six verses. So what do you think about when you hear the word, hear the number 13? Is 13 a special number? Normal number? Unlucky number. It happens that 13 is the atomic number of aluminum. In case you don't remember that from chem- chemistry days. It's the number worn by the quarterback in the NFL who passed for more yards than any other quarterback, whose name is Dan Marino. Yes, first service. No one knew that. <laughs> I can tell I'm speaking to an elevated group here. <clears throat> but for some reason, 13 seems to be viewed as an unlucky number. Tall buildings skip the 13th floor by numbering it the 14th floor or 12A. Some streets don't have a house number 13. Check out NASCAR, Indy cars, Formula One cars. How many have 13? Everett told me before the service that there is one in NASCAR. Why is 13 unlucky? Why not 9, 17, Have you noticed how significant this unlucky number 13 is in the foundation of our country? There were 13 original colonies, 13 stars on the original flag, 13 horizontal stripes on the flag. On the back of your dollar bill, if you have studied your dollar bill recently, the great seal has 13 levels on the pyramid, 13 letters in the phrase, Anuit, Coptus. On the right side, you see an eagle with a circle with a banner running through his beak. The banner has 13 letters, E Pluribus Unum. There are 13 stars above the eagle, 13 leaves on the olive branch he's holding, 13 olives on the olive branch, 13 arrows in the other claw, 13 bars on the shield in front of him. What do you make of that? You know, you wonder if somebody doesn't, someone need to, needs to get rid of this unluckiness. You know, maybe those people who are cleansing us from the Confederate flag would get rid of this unluckiness here on our dollar bill. So why is 13 so important today? <clears throat> because Jesus had 12 disciples and every time he went to a motel, he had to have room for 13 men. Michelangelo's picture that he drew, the Last Supper, has 13 men in the picture. One of them is not Mary Magdalene, (laughs) in spite of what Dan Brown wrote in the Da Vinci Code. So we're talking today about the number 13, 13, 12 disciples plus Jesus. And my question at the end of this time together is going to be, are you a disciple? Are you one of the 13? Think about your answer to the question as you think about this description of what a disciple is. We're dealing with the first six verses of Matthew 10, but I'd like to broaden things beyond Matthew to talk about this concept of discipleship. What is discipleship? What is a disciple? 
I've got four observations that I'd like to make. Number one, disciples are chosen. Disciples are chosen by God. God chooses disciples. Verse 1 says, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He called, he gave. Twelve. And then it lists the twelve. Notice the names. Verse 2, the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Notice, Jesus called and gave authority only to 12 men. Only 12. This wasn't an election. These men didn't decide they're going to climb to the level of disciples. They didn't raise their hands and volunteer. He chose them. He may have had 500 people following him. And as God, he could have worked with all 500 and another 10,000, but he chose 12. God doesn't need a whole lot of people to do his work. Three times we have this list in the Gospels. Every time you have the same 12 names. Sometimes the names do change slightly. Slightly. Peter's always listed first, and Judas is always the tag at the end. The names seem to come in groups of four, with the same names in each group. So in group A, you always have Peter, Andrew, James, and John. In group B, you always have Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. And then the C group is always James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas Iscariot. James, Judas, Simon, Judas Iscariot. Within each group, sometimes the names are switched. So it's Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and Matthew, and Luke. Mark gives us a different lineup. Mark has Peter, James, John, and Andrew. But I think this list of disciples is broken down into twos. Because Jesus sent them out by twos. And so I think... In that first A group, you have two sets of brothers. You got Peter, Andrew, and James and John. I don't think Jesus sent the brothers out with each other. They would just fight. So (laughs) my thinking is he sent Peter out with James. Peter is the loudmouth. James is the older of the sons of thunder. Okay? That was probably quite a combination. And he sent uh, Andrew... The quieter one, the one who had brought Peter to Christ in John chapter 1, he sent Andrew out with John. John was probably the youngest disciple. John may have been a teenager at this time, for all we know. And then in the B group, we've got Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. And Luke switches Thomas and Matthew. But I think Philip and Bartholomew probably went out as a team. And uh, Matthew and Thomas worked together 
And then in the C group, we have James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas. Luke mentioned, Luke switches Thaddeus and Simon and gives Thad his other name, Judas. Of course, if you had the name Judas, you'd try to get rid of that name too as soon as Christ was betrayed. Judas is mentioned, Thad is mentioned in John 14, 22, where John writes, Judas, parenthesis, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? James was called the son of Alphaeus to distinguish him from James, the son of Zebedee. Simon was identified as the Canaanite or the zealot. Both of those words mean the same thing. Canaanite is the transcription of the Aramaic term zealot. So zealot, the word zealot was the name of a group in in uh, Israel that studied how to overthrow the Roman government. They wanted to interrupt the Roman government. It was sort of an underground kind of group. So Simon could have been part of that group. Or the word zealot could simply describe his personality. You know, Simon the eager one, Simon the type A personality, that kind of thing. So James was probably linked with Thad in ministry, and Simon the Zealot was probably linked with Judas. Judas Iscariot. Iscariot is probably the name of Judas's town, Kerioth, which is down in the south in Judea. So it was probably Judas, the man from Kerioth. That would mean that Judas was the only disciple from the south, down around Jerusalem. The rest of the disciples were up in the north, Sea of Galilee, up in that area. So what do we make of this list? Who are these guys? Ordinary. Standard. Nothing really special. Outstanding. My guess is that if there was any disciple who, to begin with, might have been special, it might have been Judas Iscariot. You know, he may have been quite talented. But just standard guys. You wouldn't think of any of these guys that they would get the, the tag that they had turned the world upside down. Just standard people. If you feel that way, maybe it's possible that you, likewise, could be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Has he chosen you? If you've trusted Christ, he has chosen you. The question is, do you really want to be a disciple? Disciples are chosen. Second thing is, discipleship is fellowship. Discipleship is fellowship. I get this from, from, Matthew, from Mark chapter 3. Mark 3 says, And he went up to a mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve that they might be with him. With Discipleship is with. The twelve were chosen to hang out with Jesus, to follow him, to go where he went. They basically lived with Jesus. Jesus does not provide online discipleship. Correspondence courses. So what this meant was that they couldn't do it in the evening hours or the morning hours. 
They had to leave their jobs. They had to leave their homes. My guess is that most of these guys had jobs. Most of these guys had families. So what happened? You know, by Matthew chapter 10, they followed Jesus now, I think, for at least a year. What happened during that year? Peter, James, and John, Peter, Andrew, James, and John had a fishing business. What happened to the fishing business? You know, how did they support themselves? Where'd the money come from? Who supported their wives? All of those kinds of questions would be part of this issue of discipleship is with Jesus Christ. So every motel that Jesus checked into had to have room for 13 guys. I'm kidding, but Jesus stayed in houses, at least part of the time. They slept outside, I'm sure, a lot of the time, but they stayed in houses. And they had to find a house that could take 13 people. Think about 13 guys living at your house for a week. Any volunteers? <laughs> you know, that really is a challenge. So that makes a passage that we studied in the last couple of uh, months quite significant. This is Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. It says this, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, Follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. You get the picture? This is a house that has a room where Jesus and his disciples are reclining at a table. And many tax collectors and sinners are reclining at a table with him. You calculated that? How large is that room? How big is that table? Luke is the one who tells us that this was Matthew's house. Okay? Matthew probably had some money. He probably had a nice, a nice house. My guess is that most houses in Israel, in fact, most houses everywhere, were not large enough to handle 13 men. And so Jesus had specific, special, larger houses that opened to him where he could go. So what was the purpose of all this fellowship? Let me make two statements here. Number one, a disciple is a student of Christ. Fellowship with Christ is so you can study with him. The word disciple means a pupil, a learner. It was used to describe the student of anyone. So you had Plato's disciples and Socrates' disciples and Jesus' disciples. These were people who realized their ignorance, realized their need, and signed up to follow somebody. Spend their days with him and learn. By the time Acts is half over, a lot of the Christians were automatically called disciples because they were the ones who were studying with Jesus. When Jesus sent out his disciples in Matthew 28, he gave the Great Commission. The Great Commission says... 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. What's Jesus saying there? Make disciples of all nations. He's saying, introduce them to Jesus Christ, lead them to Jesus Christ, and make them students of Jesus Christ. Make disciples of all nations. So every Christian who has been saved has been saved to become a student. We're always and forever learning of Christ. Whatever else we do, our root relationship with Christ is that of a student. Discipleship is school. Amen? Quiet response. I'm sure there are some of you younger ones here who cannot wait till next week when you have to once again begin school. School. You ever put discipleship in that category? School? I'm sure there are some of you who have said to yourselves, I am done with that. I am finally done with that. I'm happy to be done with that. I want never again to be involved in school. Discipleship is school. Disciple is a student. So, Jesus in these days, in the Gospels days, did it by personal connection with people. How does he do it today? Today must be online. Today must be correspondence. No, he does it the same way today. We are Christ's disciples as we spend time with him. As we spend time meditating on his word. And as we spend time with one another studying him. Jesus Christ today is training disciples. I think sometimes our job as leaders at Fellowship Bible Church... Sometimes our job is simply to design excuses for people to get together. You know? We meet once a week on Sunday morning to listen to God's word, to study and sing together, and so on. Is that discipleship? Well, that's the start. But we have a Wednesday night. Wednesday night is a good time to get together. We have other things available. Sunday school, EBI, Olympians, American Girl. You know, all of these things are, are discipleship. This is being with Jesus and with others to study Jesus. So discipleship is with. The second thing I want to notice here is that a disciple is a thinking student. A thinking student. Hanging out with Jesus was not like spending the day at Starbucks. It was work. They were learning. They were thinking. They were solving problems. They were working with people. They were following directions. They were doing projects. You say, how do you know? Where in the world is there a syllabus in Scripture that says... Well, I think Jesus taught by asking questions. Here's some of the questions that we have just recently studied. Here's 
Matthew chapter 8. Jesus said to the disciples right before he calmed the raging storm, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Why are you afraid? You ever answered that question? Why are you afraid? Second question he asked, chapter 9, verse 5, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? You know, this is a man that came down through the roof. Jesus said to him, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisee said, who can forgive sins but God? Jesus said, good question. Which is easier? To heal the inside or the outside? What's the purpose of the question? The purpose of the question is to show people that the one who can do the outside can also do the inside. Another question Jesus asked, chapter 9, verse 15. Do you remember this one? I think this is an awesome question. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? What's he asking? Well, they said, do you, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples fast? His answer is saying, do you understand what's going on? Do you realize that we're talking about a marriage ceremony? Do you go to a marriage ceremony to fast? In those days, weddings were a week long. You're going to fast for a week at a marriage ceremony? He said, do you realize the fact that the bridegroom is with you? Awesome question. I imagine it took the disciples weeks to process that one. So here's how he's teaching. He's teaching by asking questions. He wants his disciples to answer some of the significant questions in life. This means that the question, are you a disciple of Christ, has to be answered by... Are you really involved in the serious things in life, the serious questions in life? Or are you just on cruise control? H.L. Mencken said, there's always an easy solution to every human problem. Neat, plausible, and wrong. Do you want the easy solutions or the right solutions? It's not just hanging out with someone. It's hanging out with someone because he has the answers we have to have. Do you want the right answers? Do you want to invest the time and energy to find them? The fact that you're here suggests you do want the right answers. Jesus said, if a man follow me, let him deny himself. Deny himself. That's the fork in the road. Deny himself. You can listen to yourself and settle for the easy, plausible, wrong answers. And decide you're going to do it your way. You're going to go what you want to do. Or you can deny yourself and, and pursue the right answer from Jesus Christ. You don't get that automatically. It's not the easy answer. It takes time. You know, we have an attitude today that views church and worship 
as, as a time to have an emotional experience. You know? Did you have a great, did you have a good worship today in church? Yeah, great today. How, how, what made it good? Well, I feel good. The music moved me, you know? It put me in a mood. That kind of thing. I think that it's dangerous to do that because you can get the same kind of thing from coffee. <laughs> you know? Or you can get the same kind of the same kind of thing from entertainment. People go away thinking they've worshipped God and sometimes what they've experienced is nothing more than entertainment. I'm not sure you worship God until you engage your brain. Until you think. Until you're thinking about God's thoughts. Until you're thinking about who you really are and what you're doing in your life and what God is saying to you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, I will pray with a spirit and I will pray also with understanding. I will sing with a spirit and I will also sing with understanding. Singing that doesn't engage the brain is not profitable. Worship ought to be school in some way. There needs to be a component that engages the understanding. That's why Sunday school is so important. It's not just hanging out with friends. It's engaging my brain because as a disciple, I'm studying the master. Olympians is so important. It's an outstanding program that engages your children's minds in studying Christ. They memorize, they learn, they think. We've only got 16 to 18 years to influence our children for Christ. And then after that, sometimes before that, we have very little influence. It's a very short time. So here's my question. Discipleship is with. How much time have you spent with Jesus this week? How much time have you spent in prayer? How much time have you spent reading his letter to you. Is there a time that you set aside just to spend with him? Is there a place that you like to go just to wait for him? Who is a disciple? A disciple is one that wants to spend time with the master. Discipleship is with so a disciple is chosen by God. Secondly, discipleship is fellowship. Thirdly, discipleship is obedience. Discipleship is obedience. Verse 5 says, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Notice Jesus did not ask them if they wanted to go out. He didn't, say if, he didn't ask if it was okay with them if they wouldn't be too nervous to go preach. He sent them. He gave them an assignment. Verse 5, which in the ESV, in your translation, it says he instructed them. 
If you've got the NIV or NASB or some other translation, it's actually the word he commanded them. This was an assignment. This was not an optional thing. The word instruct sounds kind of optional. Do it when you get around to it or when you want to. But there was an urgency to this. They did not have time to wait. He wanted them out. He wanted this assignment done. What was the urgency? The urgency is that everyone in this country needs to hear that the king is here. The kingdom of heaven has arrived. That's why you need to repent. You ever notice the fact that education often includes assignments? For some reason, you cannot learn what you ought to learn if there's not an assignment connected with it. Because students, for some reason, have to become obedient servants to become students. There's, a, there's an obedience component to it. Those who receive need to do something, need to become givers. You remain pew-sitting disciples and you become a sponge, and sponges get moldy. So it's the obedience part that affects discipleship. So why does God give us assignments? Why does God give us assignments? The answer is because we're studying the one who gave his life for all. You want to learn and become like Christ who gave his life for us? What's the value of studying and learning if we don't become like the one who gave himself for us? How do you know somebody's graduated from this school? Or ready to graduate from this school? When they want to give their life for somebody else, like the teacher. So God gives assignments because the purpose of the education is to make us like the teacher. He came to give. What does it take to turn us into those kind of people? That's discipleship. So discipleship includes homework assignments. You say homework assignments? Where are homework assignments? I've thrown three up there. Jim has thrown three up there. Homework assignments? Yeah. Love your enemies and do them good. Love your enemies and do them good. You have an enemy? You got somebody you'd rather not be around? I will not ask for a show of hands. The command is, do them good. Think of something you can do to help an enemy. What can you give them? Invest some money in an enemy, is what Jesus is saying. Invest some money. Do something good for an enemy. You done that recently? That's your assignment. As a disciple. Command number two. Here's Ephesians chapter 4. Um, be kind to one another, forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. Command number three. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. 
Do you see what's going on? These are actually assignments, homework assignments for every disciple. I have been a college professor for 50 years. <clears throat> I realize that I don't really look that old, and you don't probably believe me, but I taught my first class in 1965. And I was a full-time professor in 1966. So I've done this for 50 years. And one of the interesting things to me is to watch how students respond to homework assignments. Usually in a syllabus, you know, I'll have a series of assignments. Sometimes in the syllabus, I will have them do writing for me every class period. They have to hand in something. And I have had students who have completely ignored the homework assignments. <laughs> and, you know, they hand in nothing and they think they're going to pass. I don't know where they grew up, but some people have that opinion. And then there are people who have attitudes toward the homework assignments, you know. And uh, why are you giving us this? And then you've got people that do them half-heartedly. But when you find a student who does a homework assignment with all his or her heart, to me, that says something special about the student. You know? And I've had many students like that that go after it with zeal, like Simon the Zealot. You know, I think Jesus grades homework assignments the same way. I think he does. Here are the passages, some of them. He said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You know the command is love your enemies and do them good. Blessed are you if you do it. You are my friends if you do what I command you. See what he's doing? He's grading homework assignments. So discipleship involves an assignment. I'd like you to notice also that homework makes a disciple an apostle. Homework makes a disciple an apostle. I get this from Luke 6, 13, where it says, He called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. He named the twelve apostles. Why apostle? That sounds like a pretty formal title. I don't notice around here that we necessarily call Apostle Everett or Apostle Mark. But it wasn't formal back then. The title simply described their senior project. What are these guys going to be when they graduate? The word Apostle means someone who's sent out, someone who's got a job to do, someone who's on a mission. The word apostle describes a graduating disciple, describes the goal of the coursework. This is the goal of all discipleship, to send us out, to make us missionaries. This is the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations. What do you call a person who goes out to make disciples of all nations? What is that person? That person is an apostle, a sent one sent out to reach others with the great news. 
Jesus Christ himself is called an apostle. Hebrews 3.1 calls him the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was sent by the Father to earth to die for us that we might have life. And Jesus said to his disciples, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. So missionaries are not made by distance. Getting on an airplane to go to lower Siberia doesn't necessarily make a missionary. Missionaries are those who reach out and touch others. We have official missionaries in this church, like Tom and Heidi, like Matt and Ellen. But we have unofficial missionaries, apostles in this church, who reach out, who meet the needs of others, who introduce them to the great news that Jesus Christ saves. What does that do for a disciple? Gives them a greater desire to know Christ. During my days at the Washington Bible College, and this is ancient history, I started at the Washington Bible College in 1959. I traveled every summer in a quartet. Five summers I traveled, 10 weeks. We would, I would be out with five guys, four other guys in a station wagon driving around the countryside uh, one summer, we actually went to Hawaii, didn't drive the whole way, but we drove to California. And, uh, but we usually were ministering in churches and camps and any other kind of meeting we could stir up. And uh, usually it was an exhausting 10 weeks and we didn't get paid much. But we usually came back with addresses of young women and uh, that was an encouraging part. <laughs> but I remember one thing, one thing that, that happened every summer without fail. Every summer at the end of 10 weeks, I had an intense desire to go back to school and learn more. Because every summer frustrated me in terms of the problems, the situations that I couldn't answer, couldn't handle, didn't know what to do, didn't know how, you know? And it just gave me a greater desire to study. I think that's exactly what happens. You set out to love your enemy by doing him something good, and you will have a greater desire to know Christ. It will motivate you to read your Bible. It will motivate you to pray. So, Disciples are chosen. Discipleship is, what was number two? Fellowship, yeah. Discipleship is three? Obedience. Number four, discipleship is capability. Capability. Verse one says, and he called them, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Verse eight adds, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Raise the dead? Did it say raise the dead? Raise the dead. You ever think about the fact that Judas Iscariot may have raised a dead person? Healed sick people? Jesus gave this to them. They didn't pray for it. They didn't pray through. They didn't even know they could get it. He gave it to them. What did he give them? 
authority over unclean spirits to cast them out. Can you imagine that power? Power to tell demons where to go. And then it says, every heal, every disease, every affliction. You got two every's there for emphasis. Every disease, every affliction. That's awesome power. I want you to notice that the disciples were given Jesus' power and authority. They carried the very rod of Jesus' power. Why? Here's the principle. This is very important. They had to display what they announced. They had to display what they announced. They were announcing a kingdom had arrived. Most people don't understand kingdom. Kingdom is a rule, an authority. Kingdoms don't come to inform people, to give people entertainment, to eliminate, to, uh, yeah, they do come to eliminate people they, or encourage people. Kingdoms come to take over. A lot of Christians don't understand this, you know? They want Jesus in their lives. They want his good gifts. But they don't realize that he comes into their lives to take over. And they offer him the living room. You can have the living room. We will have fellowship in the living room. And Jesus comes and says, how about that closed door over there? Well, that's my um, secret compartment. Uh, and Jesus, I, I want that room. He comes to take over. And he says, if I am not Lord of all, I'm not Lord at all. And so the disciples went out with kingdom power. They went out to take over control of demons, take over control of sickness, take over control of death. And as they made that, demonstrated that power, they made their statement, the kingdom of heaven has arrived. You can see its power and you need to repent. This was official power. This is Jesus Christ's power. They represented him fully at the end of this chapter. Jesus is going to say, he who rejects you, rejects me. He who receives you, receives me. They had all his power. This wasn't preseason practice games that they were in. They were in the real thing. They were in the real battle. They were throwing out big name demons. Why? So they could make the announcement, the kingdom is here. I want you to think about this. We, we have been given Jesus' power and authority. We have been given Jesus' power and authority. Isn't this what Paul, what Paul said? He said, I am the display of the gospel that I preach. My life demonstrates the authority of my gospel. You want to see how powerful my gospel is? Look at what it did to me. 
Here's 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Do you want to see what my message of the gospel can do? Just remember that I was the foremost sinner. I was actually involved in murdering Christians for God. But he's made me an example of his power and ability to change a life. That's exactly the way God works today. He's using us to display what we announce. Our job is simply to announce the change that's taken place into our, in our lives. To give our testimony. We're not called to preach. We're not called to convict people. We're not called to argue theological issues. We're like the blind man who said, I was blind, I now see. You go figure it out. I was blind, I now see. I was once the chief of sinners. I now live for Jesus Christ. You say, well, there isn't any real power there. Where's the power? Where are the demons going? Sure, there's power. There's more power needed to change the inside of a person's life than to heal the outside. And what you say and display to people is powerful. When your words match your life, that is a powerful gospel presentation. Look how clearly Jesus made this statement in the last words he said in Matthew. This is the Great Commission. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you see the project? All authority... I am with you always in full power. Make disciples. If you ever realize that you have more power and authority than the early disciples because you have the very presence of the one who has been given universal authority. No, your job is not casting out demons in your neighborhood. It's casting out the demons in your heart, the ones that distract your mind and turn you away from Christ and his word. And you may not be able to lay hands on someone and heal their cancer, but you have living in you the one with all authority who can heal your heart of sin cancer that's been eating away at you. And in that process, he can use you to display what you announce that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and has transformed your life. So there's the process of discipleship. Twelve ordinary men, eleven of whom went out and turned the world upside down by God's grace. So I ask you, 
Are you a disciple? You've been chosen if you've trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. Do you act like a disciple? Do you want to be a disciple? Secondly, do you spend time with Jesus Christ, studying Him? Time with others, spending, studying Him? Thirdly, do the homework assignments affect you at all? Do you set your mind to obey Fourthly, are you reaching out? Fourthly, are you using the capability he's given you? Do you see his power in your life? And announce that to others. May there be in this church, Fellowship Bible Church, a large group of Peters and Andrews and Jameses and Johns. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you know what you are doing and that you are actually, from this location, reaching out with your power and grace to the world. What a privilege to be a part of that. What a privilege to be connected with the one who is been given universal authority with the one who has the answers to our problems. I pray that you would energize and motivate each one of us that we might with all of our hearts be disciples. Thank you for the privilege. In Jesus' name, amen.